that's a full-time job. I mean, it's not, yeah, you're competing in, 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 in my sport for three hours every weekend, but the competition starts the moment the previous game ends. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Partners in Time. It is the podcast where we're talking all things IWC and the passions that drive us with our partners, with our friends and people associated with the brand. We're into season two, week two. And today is a very, very special one because I'm joined by no other than Tom Brady. Tom, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. How are you? I'm doing great, Chris. Great talking to you. I know it's been a while since we've had time to catch up and so much has happened. Uh, you know, since the first time we met in New York City, but you know, I just love everything you're doing and, um, just done an amazing job with the IWC brand. And, um, just to see its growth over the years has been really fun to see. So keep up the great work. Thank you very much. I mean, th that's great to hear. And thank you for making time for us. I mean, as we're recording this, you're literally in the middle of the season at the moment. It's all hands on deck. It's, it's, it's rare to, to find a bit of time to, to actually be able to catch up. And you're very busy at the moment. How's it going? Well, it feels like, um, I always correlate the football season to a marathon, you know, just trying to show up every day with the right attitude, um, you know, communicate to the team about what our goals are, continue to emphasize that, and then practice on practice the things we need to to really improve on so mm. uh it's a, it's a constant evolutionary process the game of football i totally relate to that because you know sort of in my background in in more the endurance sports i always thought about any kind of race like that and, and you mentioned the marathon where basically you have this initial of euphoria off the starting line everybody's kind of you know all hyped up and, and you go and, and it's all guns blazing and then sort of the reality of the race sets in yeah. And then you get to that middle part. And I always, always found that middle section, whether that's mountain running, skiing, whatever it was, is the toughest one. Because as you say, you don't have the perspective of it nearly being over. You can't yet see whether you're going to win or lose realistically. Yeah. And you pass that initial, you know, sort of adrenaline moment and, and the hard graft really starts and the mind game really starts. I've never really related to it the same way when it comes to ball sports, but it's super interesting to hear. So for you, the, the whole season kind of works the same way, does it? Yeah, very much so. And I think there's a lot of what you see in a lot of people and a lot of, I think, real competitive athletes are, this is where the word to me intangible comes in. Mm. You know, it's like you look at teams when there's a lot of hope, you know, and there's a lot of positive emotion. And it's hard to really evaluate how good of a team you are because, you know, you would call those types of people front runners. You know, it's always good when things are good for them. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. the hard part of, you know, of, of, football season marathon you know is the process when things haven't always been great or things aren't you know perfect at the moment and what are you willing to do and which intangibles are you willing to bring to the table you know really i'm talking about character traits you know mm -hmm. mental toughness resiliency discipline determination those things are hard to measure unless you're really forced to a situation where you got to see what you're all about. You know, maybe things don't go great in qualifying. You start behind everyone else. And next thing you know, you got to figure out how to strategize your weight at the top. And yeah. you can do it both ways. You've got to develop the confidence in yourself that, hey, even though we may not be in first, we still have a path there. And we've got to work really hard and we got to commit to doing it every day. And I think so much of the joy in winning is 
comes from a place where you don't always start in the best possible place. And we're, we're at a good place, but, um, you know, we're going to see what we're made of here in the next couple of months. This is what, this is where you, this is where the true character of individual show and the character of the team really shows. No, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, and, and obviously with any sort of team, you, you, you mentioned Lewis Hamilton there, obviously he has a massive team behind him. And it's, as you say, it's one thing if the strategy that was plotted goes to plan. And yes, it's, it's a, either winning from the front, which is sort of the, the sort of easiest bit, as it were, or it is actually a strategy that totally goes to plan. But the interesting part, or when I enjoy the sport as a spectator most as well, is when clearly the initial strategy hasn't worked out. And it then comes down to the wire of actually recalculating everything, which obviously is hugely scientific in Formula One, and actually finding that path that you describe from a given situation that's totally off plan and then sort of navigating through it, persevere, and in the end come through. That's, that's surely also from, you know, it goes both ways. From a, from a fan perspective, that must also be the, the most enjoyable type of winning, you know, if, compared to being like number one from the get-go. Yeah, it's certainly the drama and it's the intrigue of, I think, in, in sports is such real time. And I think people really enjoy sports because, you know, there's no, uh, you know, I always say we're not actors, you know, this isn't like a, hey, you know, I really screwed that up. Let's, you know, let's do another take, you know, That's true. this is like, <laughs> this is real. You're, you're making split second decisions and it all, all the preparation comes down to that moment where you've got to make that split second decision in the moment. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's so present. You know, when you have 70,000 people that show up to an event to watch you, like you feel mm. so much in the present, you're not thinking about Monday morning, you know, you're not thinking about the vacation plans you're thinking about how do we win this moment and i think that's such a amazing thing about sports in that we're all there together the collective energy is all in one place at one time and we feel it when it goes great it's amazing and when you lose it sucks there's nothing worse than losing you know mm. it's just mm. you know in the perspective of sports there's certainly worse things than losing absolutely in in life but having the perspective in the moment in sports you know you want to win so bad you put so much into it and when it doesn't go your way you know, it's challenging, but you got to lick your wounds. You got to, you know, learn from the mistakes and then, you know, you got to get back on it and show the resiliency and the mental toughness to get back to the process of winning. And for our listeners, this is actually a really interesting connecting point to the last episode of the podcast. When I was speaking to Eileen Gu, she's a Chinese American free skier. She's, she's doing uh, slope style, big air and half pipe and, and freestyle skiing. And, and I asked her about that as well, because I think especially when, you're in a sport that has a relatively short competitive routine that decides kind of everything and the gold medal in the end is kind of done in, in a few minutes. Um, and obviously, you know, mentally, all the prep work that's gone into your sport, all your focus and all the rest of it, but then it all boils down to this very, very brief moment in time where you kind of have to prove it and there is no excuses in that particular second. And she said to me at the time, she said, well, for me, it's always, I know what I have done before. It's not like I have to invent anything new in competition. I just sort of try and replicate what I've already done. And, you know, that's how she gets herself into that space. But it'd be really interesting to to hear a little bit from you, um, you know, how you deal with that situation. Because it's the same, you know, you've got all of this prep time, all of the training, and then it all boils down to, you know, the stretch of a game. Yeah. And I, it's, it's the practice is essentially what allows you to gain the confidence and confidence comes from a knowing what to do and then being able to anticipate what's going to happen. You know, you hard to put yourself in a situation where you've never tried something and then now all of a sudden you're going to be very good at it. Obviously, the more you practice things, 
the better you're going to become. The more time and energy you're spent doing, you know, the practicing in particular situations, the more depth and the more confidence you're going to have for when the moment actually comes. Um, mm. I was really, I had a really cool experience. Um, you know, it's a unique experience over the course of my career. We've had different people come and speak to our teams and so forth. And, you know, our coaches always try to bring in people to kind of inspire and motivate us. And there was, when I was at the New England Patriots, probably, this is probably like seven or eight years ago. And he said, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make 90% of what we're doing subconscious so that a hundred percent of our brain can focus on the 10% of the unknown. Yeah. And it was a really cool thought because I had it. That's very much how football is. And I know, again, it's military strategy and, and, and so forth, but you know, I want a hundred percent of my brain focused on 10% of the things that I have not anticipated. The things that I've already planned for and anticipated, those should just happen, you know, without me thinking or, or the worst thing to do in sports is to think because it slows you down. Yeah. So much is about anticipating and then reacting. So if I can spend, you know, all my brain power on the unknown that's great. If there's so much unknown, it's it's very difficult in sports. And I found for me, preparation is absolutely the most important thing to success. You know, you have to prepare, which that's a full-time job. I mean, it's not, yeah, you're competing in, 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 in my sport for three hours every weekend, but the competition starts the moment the previous game ends. And what do you do for that six and a half days leading up to the next game that puts you in the best position to succeed. So there's no other way to do it. You can't fake it. You know, you have to put the time and energy mentally, physically, emotionally to go out there so you can be at your best. Yeah. And it, what you, what you described there, I mean, talking about military tactics and, and those re relations to sport, I think it's, it's, it's very true that when you look at aviation and military tactics, Time and again, it's not only anticipating every single scenario of the possible, but also really rehearsing all of the problems and dealing with the fact that your mind needs to be in a place that when things go wrong, it doesn't throw you. It actually, you go, okay, this is one of the options that we anticipated and we're going to have a plan B and then there's going to be a plan C. And I think in Formula One, I think they, they're talking a standard about 12 different strategies that are prepared for different scenarios. In aviation, they go through all the disaster drills to be, you know, one engine off, bird strike, all of these things. And, and they get thrown at pilots all of the time to be able to respond to these situations without you being too completely deflated by something going wrong. And I think that's something that we can still learn in business quite a bit because often we experience that that we're sort of the, the first thing that doesn't go to plan is like you know it's, it's like a major disaster whereas we should approach it with a way okay we know this was one eventuality what's plan b how do we react and how do we navigate around it yeah and that's i mean at the end of the day you're great that's great leadership to you know put the team in a position where a you do you need a plan you know you got to start from somewhere and you got to develop a strategy and practice the strategy. Um, you know, it's hard to, to practice against things that are completely unknown, but you have to expect that, okay, this is the path we're going to start on, but then I know all the detours as well. And the more experience you have, you know, it's the better opportunity is for success. So you can't practice every different um, delineation, but at the same time, I think the experience in business as a CEO of a business, you know, as a quarterback in the NFL, there's a lot of things that this 
it does it doesn't happen the way that you want but you still got to make the best decision based on you know what's in front of you the intel in front of you it's exactly you can't just uh you know things aren't things are never going to go to plan I mean, they're just not. But, you know, you can still, you know, have a start with a great plan and then anticipate what's going to happen. And then if it doesn't happen the way you want, okay, well, how are we going to navigate it back to the way we want? So it's so, um, you know, the correlations obviously are endless. And, you know, the, the more experience I've gained, the more I can anticipate. And the more I can anticipate, the better prepared I can be and the better prepared I can be, the better chance for success. You're not always going to win. You're not always going to have your best quarter. You're not always going to win your game. You're not always going to have your most amount of success. But you got to put yourself in a position to do that if that's what the opportunity can be. You'd hate to miss that opportunity because you weren't prepared if it was sitting there. Or you're right on a silver platter. You know, those are the ones you got to knock out of the park. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. And obviously, that's also a little bit of a difference as you go on in your career, obviously, with experience, the difference between raw talent and, and impulse and then ultimately experience and greatness that comes from that professionalism to be able to step up to it and, and create those opportunities when they present themselves to, to actually then, as you say, you can never guarantee a win, but you can guarantee to put yourself into a position that when the opportunity presents itself, you, you can go for it. But let's talk yeah, a little I bit. Think, on, yeah, sorry. I think that the opposite is not preparing. Mm. I think you can pretty much guarantee what's going to happen if you're not prepared. You know what I mean? You don't <laughs> so, have any, you have very little chance. chance. <laughs> exactly. A 99% chance of failing, you know, if you're not prepared. So if, if you get I, away I, with it, you are just lucky. <laughs> it, it's lucky. And you know what? You actually like to see other people get away with it when they're not competing against you. Cause you're like, Oh, this is perfect. Cause it's just reinforcing their bad habits. And if it's just, then when Absolutely. I get a chance to compete against them, I'm like, Oh, this is perfect. This is what I yeah. want. Which is sometimes, you know, it, it's, there's a weird balance like in our business because I agree, you know, we have sort of components of what we do that come very much down to strategy and planning, but there's also components where it's all about creativity because at the end of the day, it's, it's a creative business that, that lives off unique ideas that ultimately like fascinate people and want people make them want buy into the brand and buy into products and so on. And that's sometimes, you know, it's a moment where you have to allow a bit of chaos that's sometimes built by pressure that sometimes then builds the best results, which is quite, quite strange because it's kind yeah. of counterintuitive. <laughs> well, you know, the structured approach that you're describing to, to the sport or to military operation. But there's also, there is this element where I definitely think when the pressure is on and when we cannot debate, um, strategy and ideas for very long, sometimes that also brings out the best results, interestingly. Yeah. And you're planning, you know, I, I obviously, you see like a, a release of a of a beautiful new watch, like we were talking about the mm. serotonin. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, the, yeah, serotonin time zoner. So the serotonin time zoner, like you're obviously been planning that for a while now too. So it's not like you can, in, you know, overnight something's built. But, you know, there's so much short-term planning, obviously, that you need to allow for. But then you're also thinking about a year out, two years out, three years out, Five years out and yeah. beyond. And you're, all those things are in motion at the same time. And then you've got to be able to adapt. So that I'm sure has a lot of really unique challenges that you face on a daily basis. And it's not mm. like you go, oh, let me put this off for four months. I mean, things are happening in the moment, but they're happening three years from now too. So that must be a real challenge. Mm. No, and obviously I want to talk a little bit about, we're very honored to have you in the uh, Born of a Dream campaign. 
um, which I think we shot a couple of years ago, which describes some of the parallels between your career and, and your life. And in a sense, historically, what our founder went through when he came from Boston, um, age 27, not speaking a word of English, uh, French or, or, or German, came to Switzerland and set up IWC. Um, so in your early days, how, how soon were you confident or sure that your career was going to be sport? When, when did that decision happen? And, and you also had quite an unlikely path sort of into the game. Yeah, absolutely. And I always had loved playing. Um, I was very, I would say, a, as opposed to being a student, you know, I very much enjoyed kind of being out at recess, you know, playing with the other kids, uh, having games. I was always had a ball in my hand. I always wanted to play with the older kids. And um, that was probably a very lucky, unique thing that happened in my life. I grew up on just in a regular neighborhood and there were a lot of kids and they were all older kids. And, you know, they always were tough on me. You know, they, you know, I wanted to play with the big kids and, you know, they never wanted the little kid to play. So I really had to earn it. And uh, I really had just loved competing. I love sports. I think there was a aspect of, where I'm at now, where I look back and I go, it's really amazing the amount of people that came into my life at different moments in time, whether I was 12 years old, um, you know, I had met a guy who taught me about throwing a football, you know, and I was at this really moment in my life where I was so ready to embrace, you know, practicing on, you know, this, this specific skill set. When I was 19, I met a guy in college who was a sports psychologist who really helped me reframe my mind about what opportunities look like and how I needed to take advantage of it. And then when I was mm -hmm. 23 years old, a mentor of mine, Bill Belichick, who was one of the great coaches in sport, came into my life and really embraced me and taught me, used his experience to teach me. Um, so I had loved playing. I had amazing mentors that came into my life. You know, when I was 27, I met Alex Guerrero, who's been one of my best friends. My 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 best is almost like he's like a brother to me, but mm. taught me about how to take care of my body. And there's no way I'd be playing at 44 years old without all the things that he and I have worked on together over the last 17 years. So it's again, it's it's not me as an individual. It's me in this collective group of people that over my life have come into it, and I've really taken all of their learnings and tried to incorporate that into my life and um, been very fortunate to still do what I love to do because I still feel like a kid out there. Um, you know, I still have a lot of enjoyment going out there and playing and, uh, you know, it's been an amazing journey for me and it's taught me so much. And the best part about sports, the best part is the relationships with the people and it's the wins and losses. Yeah, those are great. But in the end of the day, your life comes down to relationships and memories. And I feel like I've had the best of both. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's one of those things like when, when you're in the space that you're in, uh, at, at the moment, I, I think it's really, really striking to, to, to hear this. Look, I, I enjoy going out there every single day and race to the max. And that's, that's really what, where the passion is. I guess you also, you cannot pay too much attention to all of the um, after game sort of uh, wrap up and discussions every single time, because I mean, everybody is an absolute expert analyzing from far away. Probably feels very different when you're down on the pitch actually doing it. Right? Yeah, it's definitely. And I think, well, again, we're, 
if I look at 22 years of my professional career, the difference in the coverage from 22 years ago to now is extremely yeah. different for all of us. And I think it's a real challenge, especially for the younger athletes, because, again, they've kind of grown up and exposed to, you know, every, you know, now there's thousands of opinions of, you know, uh, and, and that's hard to reconcile, not as an ind- just as an individual, because if you think about tw- like, let's say a 24 year old athlete, you know, you're you're growing up in an era where with the social media, the idea of pleasing everybody all the time mm-hmm. is is a very challenging thing to do. You know, when I started, when I was 24, there was, you know, look, a couple newspapers, there was a couple magazines, there was a couple shows, you know, and I would say that you're not trying to please them anyway, but there was only so much information that people were yeah, getting. That went down. And, and yeah. now it's like, I can see how a lot of athletes now, it becomes very overwhelming. There was a athlete, a, a young player who's a very talented player for, a, you know, uh, one of the receivers uh, for the Atlanta Falcons. And this last week, you know, he's 26 years old. He said, I'm just, you know, I've got to step away from playing. You know, I got to work on, you know, his his mental frame of mind. And, you know, we didn't hear those things 20 years ago. And I'm sure they were there. But there's just intense pressure scrutiny on a lot of people who they haven't developed. You know what I mean? They're so young. You know, you're 26. You're so young. Or you know, you see someone like Simone Biles in the Olympics. She's so young mm. and it's it's hard to watch. And, you know, Naomi as Osaka older, as well, you know, Naomi Osaka, yeah. the same thing. And yeah, I mean, you it, there's there's more scrutiny for for people than ever before. And it's a, it, it definitely is a challenge and there's no easy way about it. So, mm. um, so here's, here's something I was going to ask you about that, because especially that I actually had this thought yesterday was um out with our uh, dear friends and customers um, at the um, uh, testing proving ground track of Daimler out in, in Immendingen. And we're sort of driving and testing the entire sort of history of AMG Black Series from the early 19, well, early 2000s really to the present day now, obviously resulting in, in the GT Black, which is an amazing car. But you just look mm-hmm. at this and I was, I was thinking about our conversation today and thinking it's actually, what I notice in, in, in this specific world is as these machines are getting more and more complex, more and more involved. Everything, there's so many systems, so many lines of code in there that actually control every single element. I sometimes wonder then when you go back in history and sort of drive different things, it's, to a certain extent, and this is my personal opinion, but the purity of it is harder and harder to bring to the front because there's so many regulations today on noise, on emissions, on absolutely everything, which of, of course are all there for good reason. Plus all of the requirements, cars are getting heavier and heavier, systems are getting more and more sophisticated. And then when you step back, you find that purity again, that directness, the actual feeling between driver and car. And sorry, that's just like nothing to do with American football at all. But um, so just use this analogy to think, I mean, in all the time you've been in the game, it must have changed a lot. You described the social media complexity already, and there's everything from nutrition, performance anal- analysis, all the rest of it. Do you n- notice a similar thing? Is, is the purity harder to find? Is it the essence of the sport harder to find today? Or, or what, what's been the big change? Um, it's a good question. And I think, again, the rules are adapting and changing to the times. Um, and I think it's, there's a science to it and there's an art to it. Uh, and the, you know, car racing, you know, and I know again, just to, 
referenced that is, you know, the science may be more the car and the art may be more the driver, mm. you know, and I think there's the intangibles, like I said, that, you know, the, the science part doesn't take in the intangibles, you know, um, you know, the art of it is, you know, you've got to put given a given situation, you've got to use the amazing brain power you have to put yourself in the best position to succeed. And I think that, you know, the science, the, the, the data, the statistics, you know, often in sports, they call it sports science now. Yeah, you may have all the data, but it still needs to be applied correctly. Mm. You know, you need to apply it in the right place at the right time. You know, they'll call it analytics. And that's creeping into every sport. Because this is the, everything. Yeah, this is absolutely the age of information. I'm sure with your advertising, I'm sure with your marketing, where your, you know, your, your consumers, I look at the watch world. I mean, imagine now like the amount of clients and consumers around the world that have access to your products, you know, it's just, it's, it's the World Wide web, you know, and it's, it's really unbelievable how it's connected the we all now, are. The, way. Yeah. the metaverse. <laughs> we've, just that's been, a, we've just been told it's not the World Wide web anymore. Okay, exactly. <laughs> so this other meta- thing that's somehow yeah. 3D. <laughs> I know the 3D metaverse for sure. And it's you know what I see it with my kids. You know, it's literally they're connected. Um, you know, and and again, I, I don't know. We don't know whether it's good or bad. I'm sure there's good and bad in everything. You know what I mean? Mm. Like there's so many good things that come from it, and our ability to connect. And you're in Switzerland. And I'm here you know, in the Bahamas, you know, we're talking and it's instantaneous connection. And it's amazing because we can stay connected. And I'm sure there's downsides to it as well. So, you know, there's no good without bad. And we don't have the perspective to know whether what's good and what's bad because we don't have perspective on this moment. You know, we'll know years from now. And, you know, it's it's part of times changing and times evolving. And, you know, we're growing in different times. And, and um, absolutely. You know, what a segue way to the world of timekeeping, Tom. I, yeah, I couldn't have put it any better. I and mean, this is like, it's one of those opportunities on a silver place here. Let's let's go from the radically complex world of data, IT, social media, and kids uh, spending time on devices to the yeah. very analog and direct product of a mechanical watch. Yeah. I mean, the beauty is, and obviously this is something that uh, I'm, I'm not sure that all our listeners are aware of, but you're a watch person through and through. You know, you've, you've yeah. started quite early on with mechanical watches. So tell us a little bit. Where, where does your fascination with watches stem from and what's the first watch you had, you know, IWC or otherwise that you can remember where sort of the love for watches started for you? My parents gave me a graduation gift um, when I was from high school mm. and it, I think it was like an Omega. Yeah. And it was a very simple piece. And I don't know where that watch is today, but there was a fascination from my high school graduation to that point where the first, when I was in college and, um, I've always joked about this, but I, I had a screensaver on my computer and, you know, people always put kind of, when I think of a screensaver now, and that was the early age of the computer. It was this <laughs> Dell Inspiron. It weighed about, you know, four, <laughs> four, 40 pounds. One of those. Yeah. Oh my God. And, and At least it could display a screensaver. I think our first computer was like a 1985 Toshiba, like in in sort of calculator display. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and it was uh, exactly right. I I would play Oregon Trail when I was in elementary school on the big Apple computer too, you know. King's Quest. I remember that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And um, I thought, because I was obviously, I had played football in college and I thought, if I go to pro football and I ever make some money, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to buy a watch. And 
on my screensaver, I had an IWC. It was the, oh God, the Rotraponte. Rotraponte, yeah, right. yeah, the, the, the hand-wound Portuguese split minute, which, uh, like double chrono. Oh my God. Which I thought it was the coolest watch I'd ever seen in my life. And yeah. I had it on my screensaver for, I'd say a year and a half. So of course I make it to the NFL. I get drafted in the year 2000. And I didn't have a great salary at the time. You know, I was kind of a low round draft pick. So I was pretty safe and conservative with my money. The first thing I invested was a hat was an apartment. Um, and Which is useful. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you need a place to live. And um, so I go to New York City in Thanksgiving of 2002, which is November. And um, I go to the Trinot store on 57th Street. Mm. I think it's still there. It's Bucharest, and, yeah, I'm still there. And I want to buy a watch. And I go to the IWC section and I buy in um I buy an IWC that I posted probably I don't know how many different times. GST, I um, think it was. Um. Yeah, it was a GST automatic mm -hmm. alarm, I think. And um I bought it that, you know, that day. And I I still have it. Every time I look at it, I smile because I go it signified so much for me mm. in my life, you know, it, it, yes, it's a, it's a timepiece and yes, it's a beautiful watch, but it really signified that, you know, a lot of the hard work, you know, over a period of time, kind of, I had this goal that this signified something to me that I put time and energy into my career and I, I did something right, you know, and I, I gained confidence. And this was a way of every time I look at that, there's emotion and feeling in that watch. And I wear it on a lot of special occasions, you know, because I look at it and, and it, it's there's a lot of energy in that watch. There's a lot of positive memories and emotions in that watch. And, um, you know, that was the first watch I ever bought. How do you yeah. do you remember where you picked up the Rattrapont for your screensaver? How did you find out about that back then? I must have just Googled it. You know, I don't even know if it was Google at the time. It must have been a Google. And I just did <laughs> well, JPEG. Yeah. And it, it was back when I was. Well, you I, Googled I, cool watch. Or? <laughs> yeah, cool watch. Coolest watch. And that's what came up. And uh, that's when I was downloading songs from Napster. You know, and you could download and save them on your desktop, you know, and I would yeah. just literally USB save it on my desktop. connected it to your MP3 player for download. <laughs> Dial up. Yeah, that's what it was. And, uh, so as a, as a radical um, opposite end of the technological spectrum, I uh, took my um, little daughter to the doctors the other day and it was in the uh, kids hospital in Zurich and they actually had a, a TV screen with, uh, lo and behold, a DVD player up in the treatment room. And yeah. she looked at the DVD covers up there and she said, Daddy, why have they got plastic boxes up there with Disney covers? <laughs> I was like, oh, God, oh my God. It's like, this, my darling, is a DVD. It's an old plastic disc where people used to watch movies on. So, you know, that, that's sort of how much the time has evolved. And of course, today, you wouldn't be able to just walk into a tornado store and buy a watch. What you'd have to do right now is you'd have to consult everybody on social media. You'd have to live stream the whole thing. You'd have to do an unboxing on Insta Live afterwards. You'd have to be <laughs> on the phone to your half your family on WeChat all over China and then uh, do a yeah. uh, a price algorithm comparison thing online to find out where possibly how you could probably <laughs> negotiate yeah, the price. Absolutely. You know, it wouldn't be as simple as that these days. Definitely not. <laughs> I know. I know. You're you've that's the now what we're dealing with. And it's I think it was so much more simple back then. You saw it, you liked it, it was there. Um you could make up your own mind about stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah, you could make up your mind. Yeah, we can't do that anymore. <laughs> no, well, we're, not. we're not conditioned to do it anymore. I think we're reprogrammed. So 
Yeah. That's the, the metaverse talking. Yeah, definitely. That's why the best thing you can do in a store these days is turn off 5G, turn off the Wi-Fi, <laughs> go into the zone of actually having human being to human being interaction for five minutes, which is which is quite interesting. But everything is streamed today. It's in the, it, it's obviously a bit surreal sometimes when sort of the door flies open in these stores and, and everything from the moment people step in is live streamed completely. And you're like, so hello. And you're like, hang on, I'm just uh, answering some questions live here as I'm walking into your store. It's a very yeah. different reality now. It really is. And I think the last year's only transformed that even more you know we, we we notice now that that it goes directly from social media feed to expert detail knowledge on what to get where which store at what time and and, and you know it's it's amazing and and it's sometimes people have never never even traveled to the country but they will tell people who are in the country exactly where to go and what to do. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. Uh, the other day we were, this a random little um, thing. We had a little giveaway um, when we were in Goodwood for the members meeting. And I sort of put this out there on social media and thought, okay, maybe a couple of people are going to come uh, and have the password as it were. And not only were we completely inundated with people, but literally I had people that said, look, my brother who is in Scotland just called me and said that the guy on Facebook in Brazil has told him to go to Goodwood and come with the password. So he phoned me and I said, I'm in Scotland, but you're there in Goodwood. Can you go to the IWC track and use the password? So that that's the globally connection we have nowadays. And, you know, somebody in Scotland hearing from somebody in brazil to do something in the uk and you know that in the end you end up uh, like that so it's 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 quite quite a quite a change really is yeah i had a a, a funny story uh you know just to talk about that and it's it actually revolves around watches but i live in, obviously in tampa and i'm playing there now mm. and um there was i think a sotheby's watch auction in hong kong recently yeah and there was a crazy story about this guy that lived where i live in tampa and I guess he was getting rid of like 70 or 80 watches and they were all different brands and so forth. And my friend who works for, for, um, for Sotheby said, Hey, do you want to see a really cool collection? You know, these are all going to go for auction. I said, yeah. So I stopped by, it was only like three blocks from my house, very ironically, right? Tampa, Florida. Mm. And I see all these watches and there's, you know, a lot of different cool pieces and so forth. And, uh, you know, two a month later, they're on auction in the Hong Kong watch auction. Yeah. And I'm thinking in my mind, all these watches were in Tampa, Florida, two blocks from my house that are now mm. in Hong Kong. And there's people probably in Florida, in Tampa, that are bidding on watches on a Hong Kong auction where the watches a month earlier were, you know, within miles from where they were at. And yeah. it's you think about the global economy and how impossible that would have been 20 plus years ago. Mm. You know, you're a Florida watch buyer who's buying watches in a Hong Kong auction where the watches were actually in Florida and how exposed we are now to this global economy. And it was just it's it's an amazing thing to go. Wow. Look, look at how connected we are. This is uh so it's the moment when Tom Brady phoned the U.S. Customs and Border Protection helpline. I know. Said, Those watches in Hong Kong. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's very, very intriguing. No, brilliant. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, sort of watch categories for you today. Just just to understand a little bit. Obviously, you know, you're training a lot. You're, you're exercising a lot. But then again, you also, I mean, I saw an amazing... A um, couple of pictures uh, from you when you were at the White House, actually, with President Biden, I think, at the time wearing a 
was a big pile of perpetual calendar stainless it steel was. blue dial i it think was. which looked amazing with that outfit Beautiful. by the way i loved that look and i think sometimes you know also it, it just gave me that feeling that when it's a sort of serious occasion it's like when in the uk when you go to see the queen you know it's it's, it's like it's that serious and sometimes it's just it's got to be a perpetual calendar that's the only thing that sort of rises to that sort of occasion but Absolutely. what's it like for you at the moment what's your go-to pieces when when you're training day to day and then what's it for sort of special occasions i mean my favorite watch of all time is a big pilot mm. um it's been that way you know i bought many versions of them over the over the last 20 years um our friend johan made me a really cool yes. special edition Very rose nice, gold big one. pilot um you know i have the oh, we made it <laughs> I know you did. You did. And it's, again, I think they all, when I look at them, it's what they signify, you know, Mm -hmm. for me, it's what they, yeah. So it's, these are, these are moments, you know what I mean? And I I, like the time zoner. I have the one with the green strap. Yeah. I mean, I wore that, the Spitfire, Mm. I wore that the day I signed my contract for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Mm. I mean, that will always be a meaningful watch. I I wore that at our Super Bowl parade. Yeah, uh, after we indeed. beat the after we beat the the St. Louis Rams when I was with the Patriots. So it's like when I want to feel like victorious, I wear that watch, you know. And it's you know when I want to feel a, a a very noble, a very um, you know when I go to the White House and I want to wear the perpetual calendar, I want to feel elegant. I want to feel you know enriched. I want to feel classy. I want to feel. You know, that's that's the emotion when I want to feel um, I just have this really cool, you know, big pilot, um, the black ceramic one, yeah. you know, that when I just want to go golfing and I want to feel like, you know, a real sporty, chic, cool watch with, you know, it could be a pair of shorts on. I mean, you know, they're all just moments. And it's amazing, I think, for a, for a man to have that ability. You know, we, we wear so few things, you know, we're, we're not fussy with our jewelry but the one thing that we love about watches is they capture time and moments and emotions and they make memories for us and in that watch embodies feelings and emotions and moments and those will live with you and those will be given to my kids and my kids will say god my dad wore this 50 60 years ago yeah you know and they capture what's in the essence of that watch which is a beautiful timepiece that has the most beautiful memories and emotions and are captured now. Yeah. And I think that's a, it's an amazing thing to pass on because it's so tangible and we can all connect to those different feelings and emotions and we can connect through, you know, this love and beauty of watches. That's true. And it's obviously, it's a, it's a very small package with loads of emotional content. I think that's what I always love about mechanical watches. There's this few things that carry all those little marks and memories and little scratches and little days that you remember from having worn it previously. And it's such a small package that tells such a big story. I think probably, especially in, in sort of men's wardrobes and objects we use, that there isn't anything quite like it uh, that can transport so much content and, and memories over the years. And j- just asking, are you wearing your big pilot playing golf? I do always. And I, uh, when I wore the first, the, the Roger Ponte, I think it, I was yeah. at Pebble Beach golf tournament. This is in like 2003, I think. And a playing partner said, God, doesn't that affect your swing? You know, he's a pro golfer. I yeah. don't care about that. You know what I mean? Like I, 
I wear this bad added weight beautiful watch. Exactly. I drive further. I'm definitely exactly. <laughs> it never hits it straighter, unfortunately, but I don't think that's the watch. I think that's just me. We're running tests at the moment. Obviously, we're having launched the uh, shock absorber this year, which is that BMG metal uh, spring shock absorption system that protects the watch movements in excess of 30,000 G. We're actually That's testing cool. this again in a golf setup because I want to know now, as you say, I know a lot of people who wear uh, their RWCs playing golf who, who've been doing absolutely fine with it. But you're right. Technically, the advice is not to because of the repetitive um, forces on the watches when you, you know, obviously drive a lot and, and it's, it's the repeat. Uh, stresses, I think, that are the main topic here. But we're, we're, we're building a, a test rig uh, again. We might just save the money and just give it to you. <laughs> but we're just trying to fi cool. figure out how we can yeah. do a sort of endurance test test um, to really see if we can uh, industrialize that shock absorber system to to do exactly that and to actually be a, a long-term reliable watch movement for sports like golf, which would be amazing. Yeah, very cool. I love the idea. And again, I think it's more functionality too you know, to, to life and living. And, and I, I never liked the idea of, you know, and again, it's not a regular basis, but to have to take off something like that when I'm going to play golf, like I just want to wear it. Yeah. And it's, no, that's when you have the shock for. absorber, you exactly. think it's, it's really cool. And it's, it's, it's like, like all of these objects, you know, it's, it's, they're designed to be worn and to be enjoyed. You know, they're not primarily designed for a collector's cabinet or the safe or the vault somewhere to be kept in perfect winding conditions. Anyway, I always love that when we get back really either historic or a super uh, elaborate autology pieces, and they've actually been worn almost on a daily basis. And that's fantastic. That's what we've designed these pieces to do. And uh, nothing better than that. We had a gentleman uh, come to us not long ago who actually is regularly wearing a Palweber digital display pocket watch from 1885, you know, and it's like we've completely factory reconditioned it. Um, and it's just amazing when these things, things are actually used and enjoyed. That's uh, nothing better than that. Yeah. And, and tell me, like, what's the, I, I can imagine that watches made at that time by the best watchmakers in the world. I mean, they're still the highest quality, I'm sure, but there's got to be an unbelievable quality about those watchmakers yeah that that's just what they did and I, I imagine it's hard to find people like that these days that they're, they're just not trained the same way that they used to be well i think you have a a, a couple of points there firstly you know watches on on the whole have become incredibly more reliable and precise over the last yeah. uh, 100 150 years for sure and i think when you look at today what standards you achieve in chronometry, in robustness, in anti-magnetism and everything else that is leaps and bounds ahead of what it used to be back in history. Uh, I think the other thing today that's changed watchmaking uh, categorically is that um, an individual watchmaker, he or she would actually um, completely build and, and adjust um, each, every, and each and every watch movement very, very individually. Which is great when you take your watch back to the same watchmaker time and again over its lifespan. It's not so great when you're trying to buy a watch in Tampa and have it serviced in Singapore or Hong Kong, where the watchmaker would look at you and go, WTF, what is this? So, yeah, so there has yeah. to, at some point, there has to be an element of sort of shared standards of finishing and shared standards sure. of adjustments, just simply to allow us to to actually be look after these pieces in, in a globalized context. And that's, I think, has also been um, a change in the industry where watchmaking today has become a lot more systematic to to have guaranteed minimum standards of compliance basically um, between one watch and another and i think that's that's probably has changed the this kind of kind of individualistic 
way of watchmaking of a single watchmaker and his and her work to something which is more process and more systems based, of course, today than it, than it used to be. Sure. And that other special one that we are, we've definitely uh, located, I know you've got your eye out for, for a couple of things. And then there is one, which took me also took me a bit of time. Uh, Mr. Brady has quite I specific know. taste. A lot of Googling yes. required here. Too. <laughs> it's a like, lot. You always know somebody is really into their watches when, when I have to Google where I could possibly find one. So. <laughs> but mission accomplished. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> So, you know, it's hard hard to find some of those beautiful special editions that you've done at one point, because I'm sure they fly and they're gone and then you don't know where they're at. But it's when they resurface. I mean, you know, because I'm always texting you like, yeah, yeah, what do you think about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've got you've got a very, very specific and and, and great taste in, in your watches. And there's actually there's a very unique one going up for auctions at uh, Antiquorum in the Portuguese range. Um, just in a couple of weeks, there is a special edition that's really, really rare. It was the Discovery of Brazil, a Portuguese chronograph special edition, which actually has a very faint map of the world on its dial with that discovery journey from Portugal, I think it was, to to Brazil. Um, one is coming up at Antiquorum. Anyone who's after the Decoberta de do de, de Brasil, uh, you probably know that. You know that better than I do, how that's going to pronounce correctly. But um, there's one up for auction now, so have a look at the uh, Antiquorum Geneva auction. And obviously, cool. today I've got to ask you this question. Since the you know the watchmaking company IWC managed today to be an hour late uh, for your podcast <laughs> due to <laughs> a, the fact that we changed our clocks on Sunday um, going to winter time and obviously you weren't translating the Eastern time correctly into our time zone. Apologies again for that, but I've got to ask you this. I mean, you're such a perfectionist and you've got such a work ethic, but. Okay, what's can you remember a situation when you were tragically late for something, Mr. Flight, commercial flight, that is, or anything in that range? Any memory that springs to mind? Oh God. Oh God. You know, it's football we're so programmed to be on time. Um And there's a couple of people reminding you, I'm sure. So. I know. You know, we get fined like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars if we're one minute late. So in the end, I'm So you early. haven't missed a ma- you haven't missed a game so far. That's good. I'm never good. very fortunate. And I don't knock on wood for God's sakes. I can't ever miss a game or any of those things. So I plan to wake for- up like three hours later and go, Oh, wasn't that supposed to be somewhere? <laughs> yeah. There's only been a few times in my career where I've had to jump in the car and realize, oh shit, I'm late and had to, you know break break speed like i've been on the autobahn breaking speed limits and mm. uh trying to get to the meeting on time but i've been very fortunate i'm not we've done this person. in a very safe and considerate manner at all times of course i'm sure yeah of course exactly i've been more <laughs> lewis hamilton on the road a few times but uh i don't plan on i don't really like being like that no. i try to be on time as best i can and it is a terrible feeling. You know, that feeling when it strikes you that you're meant to be somewhere completely different. I mean, it doesn't happen to me very often either, but I had it a couple of times when you suddenly, it dawns on you, oh my goodness, am I not supposed to be? And then you get your phone out of your pocket and you already have like seven missed calls from the same person. <laughs> I know, I know. Okay, how do I now get out of this one? <laughs> I know. But obviously, yeah, I, you know. I fly a lot of commercial, but luckily I've only ever missed one flight. That's, um, you know, which I, which I think is, is quite a good record. And 20 very good. But, yeah. 
<laughs> it's amazing, actually, because, you know, there's so many things that are that are hard to plan for. So that's that's hard. You miss a flight, too. That's a that's a big. Yeah. And that's that definitely something to do with biorhythm, which I've learned since. Like if you're trying to get up like um, at a time when your body is not normally ever used to getting up like one o'clock in the morning or something like that, you do have to do more than just set a single alarm because if you're exhausted and you're trying to set your alarm clock for half past midnight, one o'clock and you're in that deep sleep phase, you there's nothing wakes you up there. It's literally like I think I'm slept through an hour and a half of my alarm going off like nine to the oh dozen. Right? It's literally like, yeah, literally didn't hear a thing <laughs> until at one point That's the driver that. knocked on my door and said, Oh, Mr. Granger, hello. And I said, yes. He said, I think we missed your flight. I was like, Oh, you could have woke me up earlier when we hadn't missed uh, the flight. That would have been better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Where were you an hour and a half ago? Anyway, so let's 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 just wrap this up quickly with this wonderful category of questions that um, I randomly pick, and um, every guest on the show gets to answer a couple of those. So the first watch one we've, we've gladly already covered, but I do want to. I mean, I, I think I know the answer to this one, but I do want to ask you if there's one moment in your life where you wish you could have stopped time, what would that have been? Mm. Good question. Oh, man. This is where you're supposed to say my wedding day. <laughs> well, actually, well, yeah, I mean, that goes without saying. I thought you were saying the, the <laughs> that goes without saying. I, I would say, hmm, I think early in my life, you know, I wish you realized how good you had it when you were a kid for your responsibility. You know, we always mm. want to get older. And I think those moments when I was young, I had the best childhood, you know, and I think just being free and young and, you know, those were great moments, you know, it, I'd love to get back to a little bit more simple life, you know, a little bit more simplicity, a little less responsibility, mm. you know, cause it's hard to take on all those things. Cause then life moves so fast, you know, yeah. cause you don't take the time just cause you're always thinking of ahead. And, you know, I've got to do a better job of that in my life, in my career, because things are moving faster and faster. Super. On that bombshell, thank you so much, Tom. It's been amazing to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining the, the podcast in this episode. Um, wish you, of course, all of us at IWC, wishing you all the best for the rest of the season and everything else you're getting up to. You know, I'm sure it's it's your focus, your experience is going to help you at this moment in time. And we're all behind you, all rooting for you. And I really do hope that I'll uh, come out this year and manage to catch up with you face to face and see a game, which I'd love to do. Still haven't done it. I hope so. And you're welcome anytime. And uh, again, thank you so much for having me. I love everything we've done together and just so grateful for your support. And, um, you know, you're just, you're a great guy. You're a great entrepreneur, a great CEO, and uh, really proud to be associated with you and incredible brand. Thank you. Thank you very much. Enjoy the time with the family. Um, as I said, all, all the best for returning back to football and the rest of the season. Speak to you very soon. And thank you very much to all of our listeners for tuning into this episode. And I speak to you again next time when it's time for another episode of Partners in Time. Talk to you then. Thanks a lot.